The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, I'm bringing you the warmest aloha from the big island of Hawaii, where I now live, and I don't teach classes in Santa Cruz anymore. (laughs) Most of the rest of it, I think, is true. And I particularly want to offer gratitude to all of you tonight, because I'm actually, um, having said I'm not teaching in Santa Cruz, I just finished teaching the ISC retreat, the Insight Santa Cruz retreat, at IRC. So we got to have a retreat at the center that you all have supported and made happen in Santa Cruz, and it was truly wonderful. And I really, I and all of us really want to thank you for everything you've done to make that happen. When we were having visioning for Insight Santa Cruz years ago, you know, you know how visioning gets. People get quite exalted in their ideas. And people had this idea that we would have a rural center and we would have an urban center. Well, you know, reality came in and we got the urban center. And you, quite kindly, came along and gave us the rural center. So thank you. Because now we have both, both in our backyard. I think it's 17 minutes from Insight Santa Cruz to Insight Retreat Center. So... Hmm. So having just come from the retreat world, I've been thinking a lot about the breath. And I actually thought it would be good to talk some tonight about practicing with the breath and some of the other really basic foundational practices because working with breath is so central to everyday life practice that often as we live our lives, our minds get so busy and agitated, all the planning and organizing and worrying and the stuff of life. And so coming back, I don't know, maybe your practice is different, but in mine, coming back to the breath over and over and over again is really, really important. And often, I think when I've taught retreats, I tell students, you know, begin again is really one of the better practice mantras that you can have no matter what has happened in your practice. You can always remind yourself to begin again. And beginnings, as you know, are really, really important. They create the foundation for everything else that follows. And... Um, I've always loved that teaching from Suzuki Roshi where he talks about the wisdom of the beginner's mind. And, And you probably all know that quote where he says, in the mind of the beginner there are many, many options and in the mind of the expert there are few. So, and when I was working on the talk this afternoon I was remembering one of um, the teachers at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, Michelle McDonald, then McDonald Smith, I think. And she used to talk about how every year she would look through her local community college catalog or Parks and Rec, and she'd find a class in something she had never done before. And then she would go and take the class because there was that way in which it put her back into the beginner's mind of having to learn something that was completely new and and to go in with that kind of 
freshness. So, you know, we're often invited to step back even every time you sit and be a beginner again. And the instructions, of course, always say, well, go back and begin again with the breath. And probably, if you're like me, uh, you know just how much difficulty you can create in your own life in those times when you like to pretend you're not a beginner and you really are, you know, and we we put on the the whoops the costume of of being an expert, and then we're really in deep trouble. So, in this amazing practice of awareness of mindfulness, we begin with the breath. We always begin with the breath. Every sit, every retreat, anything I've ever done anyway, always starts with that very basic teaching of the breath and relaxing into the awareness of the breath. And it's such an astonishing event, really. And those of you who have been present, I always think of when my first grandson was born and I was able to be there. and You know, out came this little slimy lump. And then he opened his mouth and he began to breathe and then he yelled and... You know, it went on from there. He's about to be 13, so um, he's definitely gone on from there. He's almost into adolescence. So the breath is, is the beginning of our lives. Each one of us had that first breath. And it's what is sort of the earmark of our existence as human beings. So we begin there, and the instructions in practice, which probably most of you know pretty well, are that you go back to the breath. Anytime you get lost or confused, you know, or, or maybe you're having one of those sits when the mind is truly crazed and you forget all the instructions for practice that you ever heard, no matter how many retreats and how many practices and how many years of practice you've done, or maybe when you're scared and you can't quite figure things out, the instruction says, go back to the breath. Go back to the breath. Just sit there with the breath and be with that. Or sometimes we go back to the breath when things are just quiet and there's not too much else going on. And it's a place where we can rest. Because being with the breath is what orients us, doesn't it? Calms us down. This is why we do it stabilizes the mind and helps us to concentrate. So it really um, supports um, the deepening of our practice. But the beginnings of practice actually go back even further than the breath. So one thing to think about is that some of the beginnings of your practice is our, everything that has happened, everything that happened up until the moment when you started your practice. So whatever it was, that was, you could all think for a minute about when, when you began to practice, whenever that was, whether it was six weeks ago or 16 years ago, you know. And one thing built upon another, childhood, education, life experience, successful marriages, failed marriages, whatever, 
and all of those things, and something brought you to the point where you came here or someplace, and you went to a class or listened to a tape or read a book and went, oh, oh. And that led you into the practice. And those things are part of the foundations of tonight's practice. So one of the things I wanted to weave in with the breath tonight is another foundational practice, another reflection, which is actually very, very helpful as we think about the beginnings of practice, the things that we build our practice on. And this is a teaching about, sometimes called, um, the four thoughts which turn the mind. And so these are four reflections that are useful at any time um, to turn us toward practice. So they may be thoughts that in fact crossed your mind whenever that was that you came to practice and they are also thoughts which when we reflect on them can strengthen and deepen our practice. So they nourish it at every stage along the way. So here are those four thoughts. The first is to reflect on the preciousness and rarity of a human life with opportunity and leisure for practice. The second is an old friend. It is the absolute inevitability of death. And the third is reflecting on the incredibly awesome power of our actions, even the smallest ones. And the fourth is the pervasive presence of suffering. So these might seem really familiar because, in fact, they do so much influence us when we come to practice. You know, we've experienced some aspect of them. It might be, you know, it might be the stunning moment of a birth or it might be when someone really close to you has died or it might be when you've had some difficult diagnosis of your own or it might be when you're involved in some kind of action um, that brings great good or great difficulty or it may be something that has happened, there certainly is plenty of it, where you see the enormous suffering that is present in, on our planet. And these things are, they're really just as familiar as our breath, aren't they? They're so there. They, and they, because they're really the earmarks of human existence. And they are the, the problems, if you will, of having a human life. So the first one, the preciousness of a human life with leisure and opportunity for practice. So whatever else you might say about human beings, and there's a lot to be said, we actually are indeed very rare. We're really very rare. You could, for example, reflect on the size of the cosmos, which is one of the things I really love to do these days. I'm enamored with the astronomy picture of the day and all those amazing images from the Hubble Space Telescope. And 
And so we now know, you know, we, we thought, I mean, once upon a time we thought we were the center of the universe, didn't we? Everything went around the earth. And now we know we are just an infinitesimal speck. We're one of billions of galaxies with, with more billions of stars. It's astounding what we now know about the universe. And, you know, lots and lots of scientists and astronomers are searching for, you know, is it possible that there's other habitable planets out there, the ones that are just in that right sweet spot in their own solar system where they're just close enough but not too close to their star, where there might be some possibility of life as we know it (laughs) emerging. And, you know, so far they're not finding very many. They found a few that might possibly be in the right spot, but I don't think they've found anything that looks as though it actually has life. So in all of that immensity, maybe, maybe, isn't it astounding? Maybe somewhere, maybe, there's a planet that could support life of some sort, let alone complex life like our own. And we happen to be existing on at least a planet, if not the planet. Probably not likely that it's the, the planet, but there might not be so many. So here we are in this little tiny infinitesimal speck in the universe. And, you know, on this planet of ours, we are vastly outnumbered. There are seven billion of us, it's true. But, you know, each one of the seven billion of us has trillions and trillions of small infinitesimal organisms of our own that, you know, one statistic I, I think somebody was quoting at the retreat this weekend, I think you're about 10% human being and the rest of you is bacteria. You know, that's not, that's not so interesting, is it? I mean, it feels a little strange. Or if you want, you could count all the numbers of insects, including the ants, you know. And there's way more of them than there are of us. And a lot of them are, have been around for a lot longer. And then if you add in all of the fishes and the birds and the other kinds of life forms, you know, there's just a lot of beings out there. And so having this particular manifestation is not so very common. And we are very, very recent. Most of you probably know that. And we only come in, you know, at the tag end, you know, those timelines that have all the dinosaurs and the emergence of life and all of that. And way, 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 way down at the end, just the tiniest little sliver, about a hair's breadth, is the emergence of human beings. So this is not common. Hasn't been around for very long. It's really, really unusual. And so it's considered then to be precious because it's so rare. And it's even rarer in the traditional teachings to have the leisure and the opportunity to practice because just as our planet needs to be right in that habitable zone, so we also, as human beings, need to have just the right conditions to have um, the, both the interest in practice and the time for it. So just enough difficulty and just enough ease. And it's interesting, in the 
Buddhist cosmologies, the human beings kind of come in right at the middle. There's a whole bunch of, of beings that suffer too much. They don't have time or energy to practice. You know, they're in survival mode. And the ones that are higher up, sometimes, you know, the, there's not so much interest in waking up. It's too comfortable. So the classic image is as though on all of the oceans of the world, all of the oceans, in all of those oceans, there's a blind sea turtle swimming around. And floating on the surface somewhere, in the traditional teachings, it's an oxbow. I often think of it as a life preserver. Floating around, a little more contemporary. So your chance of a human existence with enough leisure and opportunity for practice are about as good as that blind sea turtle coming right up in the middle of that life preserver. So not very good. Really, really unusual. And you know, you don't have to buy into esoteric cosmologies and different heaven realms and hell realms and that kind of thing, to see that in the human world, people who suffer too much, who are really caught in places where there is starvation and war, who have no homes and no resources, there's no time for practice. There's only time to try to survive. And, of course, we also know that it's possible if we're really, really comfortable... Then it, and there, we have lots of resources, it's easy to get caught in the practices of greed and the constant quest for more and the idleness and the numbness that can sometimes come with too much indulgence. And so that doesn't lead to openness to practice either. Just the right place. I think of this as the Goldilocks and Three Bears Dharma. You know, not too hot, not too cold, just right, right in the middle. So that is one of the reflections to consider how lucky you are. Everyone in this room, really, really lucky because we're here and you have this place and you had the time and the energy and the wherewithal to get here tonight. Really, really lucky. So then, there's the reflection on impermanence. And you might remember that's one of the things that actually brought the Buddha to his awakening was when he had that encounter with the heavenly messengers and, um, and he saw someone who was sick and someone who was old and someone who was dead. This was when he was very young, when he was still a prince. And he was astonished. He'd never seen and He'd been protected from all of that before. What is that? You know? And would it happen to me, he said. Isn't it amazing? You know, you get to be whatever he was, 29, I think. And he didn't even realize that he might die. But of course, we don't, you know, we don't. And so, you know, tonight, maybe even while you were sitting, maybe you saw, for example, how utterly impermanent the breath is. It's really astounding if you start paying attention to it. It comes, comes in, and it goes. And never in all time and space will that particular breath be here again. You know, or maybe you had dinner before you came here tonight. Where is that dinner? I mean, it might be rumbling around in your gut someplace, but the actual act of eating it is gone. It's back there with the dinosaurs. It's not recoverable. 
It takes your breath away, actually, when you really start reflecting on that. And we are so resistant to this idea. And we are so resistant to the notion that we will die. Everyone else is going to die, but not me. I was, you know, I was working on, on this talk a few days ago, and I had some music on, and all of a sudden I noticed I was hearing this line in, in the song, and the line was, if I should ever die, well, spare me, you know, if I should ever die, you know, I wanted to, you know, say, hey, you will, you will, you will. And how many times have we all said, if I die, if I die, then you will get, or if I die, do this or that. Well, you know, so sorry. It's not if, it's when. It's when. It helps to be getting older, I'm finding. I'm actually seeing, you know, now that I'm in my 70s, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is getting very real. It's right there. It's not quite so avoidable. But at any age, we all have those rude awakenings. I talked to a young woman I I do some work with. We had a Skype session just yesterday. She went in for a routine blood test. Just a routine blood test. She's feeling fine. Bad results, really bad results. She doesn't know quite where it's pointing yet. But, you know, I mean, we've all done that, right? You go into the doctor, you think it's okay, and they say, oh, you have a this or a that. We'd better check it out. And sometimes the results really turn your life around right there in that moment. It's very astonishing. Or just, you know, there's also, of course, the ongoing wake-up call of the aging body. You know, what does is, what is this body think it's doing? I mean, really. You know, it sags and it bags and it wrinkles and it changes color and all of those things. And, but it is a wake-up call. Again, you know, I, you don't have the body that you had when you were 20 or 40 or even, for some of us, 60. These are the heavenly messengers. That's what they're called in the texts. We don't like them, you know, but they are the heavenly messengers. And for most of us, if I look around this room, it's really true. For most of us in the room, our life is mostly gone already. It's mostly gone. You know, if you're 40, maybe it's 50% gone. And if I make it to 90, mine is about 80% gone. And if I don't, it's maybe even 90 or 95 or possibly even 99.9. I'm supposed to sleep tonight at Gil's house. But will I? Maybe. But I might be gone by then. And, you know, to keep that in mind always, it's really serious. It's really, really serious. Because we don't know. We never know when. All those folks who were running the Boston Marathon a few weeks ago. They were just running a marathon, right? I climbed Mount Lassen a few years ago. The next day, there was a little boy up there with his family. He ate his Cheerios in the morning. He went out to hike this wonderful hike up the mountain, and part of the mountainside fell down and killed him. Ten. Gone. We all know those stories. You all know those stories. We all have stories like that. You know, and that message is, don't waste time. 
don't waste time. Don't think, oh, you know, maybe out there I will really get to practice because you might not get there. You might not. You know, Jane Kenyon has that wonderful poem that she, where she talks about, she says, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. And then later in the poem she says, I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Ajahn Chah said, you know, when once he was asked why he had a particular teacup, you know, you can imagine that this is a beautiful teacup, and someone said, well, you know, how come you're so attached to that beautiful teacup? And he said, I consider this teacup to be already broken, you know. And so to really consider this event that calls itself you to be already broken, to be even already dead. And that's a very, very strong kind of practice. The monks teach a practice where when they say goodbye to each other, they say goodbye forever. And you know, it makes us smile to think about it, but try it, it will take your breath away. When you look at somebody you really love, and you're saying goodbye, maybe for a day or a couple of days or a month, and you say goodbye forever, and you really mean it. Because you don't know, right? And it really wakes us up to the truth of this. So then there's the power of our actions. And you know, we forget that all the time. Everyone in here has been really hurt by the actions and words of someone else. And none of us are innocent of harm. We've all done things that are really painful. And, of course, countless hours of therapy and processing later, we know how long the reverberations of those actions, either towards us or that we have done ourselves, can be. You know, they go on for a long time. But, of course, also we feel the reverberations of all the skillful actions, don't we? This is called karma, what I'm talking about. And so, you know, if you think about the, all of the things that happened, all of the actions and their consequences that ended up with our being here tonight, you know, it's really that the people who had this building when it was a church before, and there's Gil and his practice way, way, way back, and maybe his growing up in Norway, and his grandma and his grandpa, and all of your grandmas and grandpas, and you know, the airplane that brought me over from Hawaii and pretty soon Spirit Rock and Jack Cornfield and Ajahn Chah and Mahasi Sayada and, you know, it's astounding. And all of that, all of the reverberations of endless, endless, endless skillful actions and here we are at IMC on the 27th of May in 2013. So, you know, 
it's important to remember that the smallest of actions can have can have serious consequences. You know, there's a. I was told once that if you're like if you're a ship setting out from the Atlantic coast of our country, and you change your course by one degree, by the time you get over to the other side, maybe instead of being in Europe, you're in Africa. You know, it's a really different ending just by that little bit of change. Or someone once said to me, was just as the Iraq wars were starting, was one of my students, he said, I have no idea how to create peace in this world. None. He said, but what I do know is how to be peaceful. And I take refuge in that. I know how to be peaceful myself. I can do that. And that's what I'm going to do. And he set about acting in as peaceful way. Well, you could imagine if each one of us in this room decided to do that, that would create quite a reverberation. And it does when groups of people do that. You know, for many, many years, I did work as a therapist, and of course I've been teaching for a long time now too. And every now and then, you know, someone will come in and they'll say, remember when you said, and then they'll put something in. I almost never remember, you know. I, I don't, you know. I've said a lot of things. And, but, you know, that one word at that one particular moment in that particular person's life created such a reverberation. And it's lovely to hear that. I'm happy to know that I apparently do say the right thing at the right time for some people. And, and it's helpful to see that sometimes that just those small things can really change a life, can change a direction. And it's true for all of us, whether, whatever your role in life is. So then the enormity of suffering and samsara. It doesn't seem to come without suffering, does it? You know? It's pretty astounding looking around and just experiencing just having a body. You know, just having a body. Gets sick, it gets old. I've had two significant eye surgeries this winter. How annoying can it get? I mean, really. You know, it's beginning to fall apart. And, and it hurts. It just hurts. You go on a retreat. You come to a sit. You're, just, you're being a good kid by being here and, and meditating, right? And your back hurts or your knees hurt or your hips hurt. And maybe your body was fine last week when you sat, but this week it suffers. You know? So there's so much suffering that goes on in the body. And then, of course, there's all the suffering in our lives that comes about because we're never really quite happy with the way things are. And, and even when they, if they are okay in this moment, then of course we're trying to hold on to them to make sure they stay that way. And either way you're caught because they don't stay the way they are. And we never get completely satisfied. It's always out of round. It's always unsatisfactory. This is the teaching about dukkha, you know. And... And then, you know, so our lives, our bodies don't work, our lives don't work. And then you, you know, go to news on Google or you get your, you know, digital edition of the New York Times or however you get your news. And the planet is just filled with so much suffering. All of the injustice, all of the prejudice, 
all of the killing, the endless shattered families and lives, all of the huge storms that are happening now and the, you know, environmental disasters. It is everywhere and it is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. So the Buddha saw this and he saw that we struggle against the way things are and of course struggling against the way things are makes the ordinary suffering of the body and all of that much, much worse than just just the simple pain itself. And of course he also saw that we could let go of these attachments and come to a place of some ease and freedom. So, you know, what else is there to do in the face of all of this but to practice? You know, it seems to be, at least in my way of thinking, about the only thing to do in the face of the serious and unusual problem of having a human life. And so in our practice we go right into it, don't we? You sit down and you go into what is true and actually many of us find that that's about the only way to find some ease. Avoiding it, denying it, pretending it's not there just creates more suffering. So we sit. We sit. We give our attention to the breath. We give our attention to the body. We give our attention to all of the states of the mind and the heart. The awareness of the fact that some things are pleasant and comfortable and some things are not. We're just sitting, just breathing, noticing what's there, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mental objects, all arising in the field of awareness. We're just paying attention to this precious human life. And that's enough. That's enough to just give your attention to the fact of having a life. David White says, enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. Trying to pay close attention to the time because I'm told you all turn into pumpkins at nine o'clock, so. (laughs) Hmm. How many more breaths will there be? How many more breaths? The Buddha said, all you know is that if you had an in-breath, there will be an out-breath. That's about as good as it gets. There might be one more breath. There might be 59 more breaths. There might be many thousands more breaths. We don't know. So each breath is precious. Each time you breathe, the in-breath and the out-breath one after another. And of course, as we breathe, we begin to see, (laughs) it's not one of the happy insights, we begin to see what gets in the way of the simple experiencing of life. And we see how often did anybody have a perfectly still and silent 
meditation tonight where you were absolutely 100% here every second of those 45 minutes? Probably not. And if you did, you are very unusual and very lucky. Most of us find that the practice continues, for the most part, most of the time, to be constantly coming back over and over again because we get pulled away from just being present in our lives. You know, all the aversion, all the upset. Sometimes you're tired, you're sitting at the end of a you're sitting at the end of a holiday weekend. That's pretty impressive, actually. You know, or we get caught questioning, you know, why am I doing this? And, you know, couldn't wasn't there something better? Couldn't I have gone to a movie tonight or something else? But you know, this is life too, just even that worried, planning, questioning mind. Because every time we get caught in those places, that's actually a teaching for us. That's one of those places where you can go, oh look, I'm not cooked yet. I'm caught by this desire. Or I'm really caught in aversion. I've, I, you know, that's something to look at then when these things happen. It's part of being human and it's part of the reverberation of previous actions. So we come back to the breath over and over, calming, stilling, concentrating the mind. And we bring that breath to the places of suffering. And when we bring the breath into the difficulties of life, you bring it right into your suffering, we begin to see, oh, this might be a way then to practice with samsara. I can sit here and be present and breathe. It's one of the most compassionate things you can do is to be fully present with your own pain and with the pain of another, to breathe right into it. It's very, very simple. I was asked not too long ago to write a uh, little commentary on a Zen koan for a book that's coming out this fall. And I got this wonderful story, so I wanted to share it with you. It's about three monks, and they're on a journey, they're on a pilgrimage. They're hiking along, minding their own business, and they see a tea shop, and they think, great, we'll go in and have a cup of tea. So they they go in, and there's an old woman who's minding the tea shop. And um, so she fixes them a pot of tea, and she takes over the pot and the three cups, and she says, Oh, monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. Well, what do you do? If you're a monk, even if you think you have miraculous powers, you're not supposed to talk about it. And you're certainly not supposed to flaunt it. So they kind of looked at each other and they didn't quite know what to do. And then she said, watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. And then she picked up the pot of tea, poured three cups, and walked out the door. That's all. That's the end of the story. You can chew on it a little if you'd like. It is one of those chewy Zen stories. Nothing special or fancy, right? The the miracle is just being here, being fully here for whatever time we have, being in a here in a way which harms no one, even ourselves, being here simply without causing any suffering or at least causing less. 
My friend Norman Fisher says, Meditation is fundamentally sitting with the basic feeling of being alive. What is the basic feeling of being alive? Being conscious, embodied, and breathing. That is what it actually feels like to be alive. Every moment of your life, all of your feelings, thoughts, and accomplishments depend on this. But most of us hardly ever notice it. In meditation, our task is just to be present with this and nothing else. Simply sitting, aware of the feeling of being alive. And then Art Vanderloo says... The mystery of life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. 8.59. (laughs) So take a breath. I'm happy to take questions or comments, but I don't want to keep you here longer than you want to stay. So you can tell me what to do. Okay. People can surely come up and talk to me. I have no idea if Gil is here yet or not. Um, so um, I have to sit here until he shows up, or maybe I'm going to sleep here tonight. I don't know. So, in any event, um, thank you so very much for listening and for being here. It's a real pleasure to come back. I haven't been to IMC in years and years, I don't think. So it's really good to be here. Hope you will all come visit us on the Big Island and practice with us there. So.